This podcast is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. It not only educates its students about today's communication industry, but it produces innovative leaders. For more information, go to ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we focus on our second podcast about storytelling, its importance to our culture, and how we tell and deliver stories in the 21st century. This week, we look at a more traditional but still exciting genre of storytelling, the documentary film. We're talking with award-winning filmmaker Evan Shaw, and he traces common threads of storytelling from films about athletics to historical documentaries. He also breaks down how he tackles a documentary subject from conception to the edit room and on to the final product. Evan, you've told stories through video all your professional life. Uh, You started in sports, uh, Mm -hmm. doing college sports, uh, doing some professional sports, cinematography, I should say. Uh Then you went to doing medical documentaries. Mm and now you're doing historical documentaries. All of those are storytelling, but they're a little bit different. How did you approach athletic storytelling? So when I worked um, for the Ohio University Athletic Department, I was an assistant athletic director for multimedia marketing, which was the world's longest and worst title ever. (laughs) It never fit on a business card. Um, I tried to approach that just how I would any other documentary. Um, I think people look at sports and think it's a story of what happens on the field, scores, stats, and that's it. But I really try to find people and characters, and I think that's a key thing in any kind of story that you're talking about is finding those characters that can drive it. And so we really try to focus on the individual athletes um, on the football team, on the basketball team, who may have unique backgrounds, who may have unique talents, things like that, and really try to humanize them, especially in football, because when you watch a football game, everyone's under a helmet. And... Everybody, can't see faces, you can't see, can't faces. see grimaces. Exactly. All Basketball, baseball, you see faces, right. um, haircuts, things like that. Football, you don't see any of that. Everyone looks like a stormtrooper. Um, and so we really tried to focus on humanizing these individuals, these players, and give the fans somebody to relate to, um, which ultimately was a cool story angle for our projects, but it also helped with the you know, overall advancement of the athletic department because it let our fans become more invested um, in those individuals. So they they took on the personalities. They rooted for those exactly. personalities. Right. They uh, found something in common with somebody. They wanted to see how they developed or matured. Right. And I still hear people who, oh, I love this person, this athlete, because of things I learned about him or seeing this person go through some adversity um, off the field maybe or something like that through an injury. Or uh, there was a story we did about um, a defensive lineman named Corey Hastings. And the story wasn't even about him. It was about his brother who was in Afghanistan and was wounded in action. And humanizing that, and then when you see Corey on the field with his brother's name and initials on his cleats, you recognize that, and you recognize that he's a person going through things that lots of Americans are going through. And so people rooted for him 
for the rest of the year and still do. So that kind of stuff was always fascinating. And those are the things I really try to focus on, as well as here are the highlights of the game. But let's also work on showing those in a broader context. Well, when you do game highlights mm-hmm. and you've been called in to do a single game somewhere right. or uh, a single professional game somewhere, uh, the storyline seems to be within the game, but do you still think about story or do you just think about shots? So I have really lately tried to focus on story above shots because at this time, this day and age, lots of people can get good shots. Um, you watch ESPN, you watch you know a network television broadcast of a game. The camera work is incredible now. What not everyone can do is find those storytelling shots. So if I'm shooting a football game or a basketball game, finding shots on the bench of reactions. You know, maybe the touchdown happens, but the cool shot may not be the guy crossing the end zone. It's the quarterback celebrating. Dejection, guys losing. That's always a fun one to find, too. You know, when guys are upset um, on the field, showing that human emotion um, is just as good, if not better, than a perfect shot of a touchdown or a home run or something like that. I think finding those faces um, and those instances that make these athletes human and give the audience something to relate to and so they can feel that. I don't know what it feels like to hit a home run. I do know what it feels like to lose. And so I feel like if, I, if you see that, you can relate to them in some ways. And, and the fan wants to be able to relate. Absolutely. Right? I think so. I think I've struggled with this. Being a fan is strange. The more I've worked in sports, right. I don't get it sometimes, to be perfectly honest. It's, but I am too. And it's weird to figure out what is it about these individuals that makes us want to be with them, be like them, be around them. Well, it used yeah. to be, as I was growing up and we're different generations, it used to be geography. Right. You, you uh, cheered for your hometown team or the team nearest you. Right. Uh, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, and the Cleveland Browns were the only game in town right. in, in professional football at the time till mm-hmm. the Bengals. Uh, came along. Now you don't get that so much. People are much more mobile, and certainly players are much more mobile. Absolutely. And so anything you can do to kind of help that audience or the fan feel like they know this person, you know, because, you know, especially with like sports like basketball, I feel like you follow an individual regardless of what team he may go to or things like that. I'm still a LeBron fan, even though he's in uh, LA now. Um, and I like being able to feel like I know what he's going through. Like I understand him on more of a deeper level than just putting the ball in the basket and things like that. My wife had never been a football fan until, oh, maybe five or six years ago. And she started watching Hard Knocks on, on HBO. Right. And watched it more as a drama than, than uh-huh. a, a sports film. But that has propelled her now into being an avid football watcher. Right. And and fairly technical football watcher, but it was because of the story first. Exactly. And we did a program similar to that when I was at Ohio University uh, Athletics called Relentless, which was with the football team. And it was over two years during training camp. We're in there every day with the guys. We're off the field with them on their breaks, playing golf, things like that. And I still get comments um, for people who Oh, you know, Travis Carey, TJ Carey is a good example. He was a cornerback for the Bobcats. He now plays for the Cleveland Browns. So many people still love to see him play for the Browns because they got to know him. He went through some adversity and relentless. He hurt his shoulder real bad. We were in the locker room with him while he was figuring it out. And, you know, and then to see him come back throughout the season and become a leader, even though he wasn't on the field, I think it just gave a way for people to, um, to relate to him and really just feel like, make him a person instead of this mindless 
football uniform <laughs> that's out there. You went from doing that, and you mm-hmm. still do do, mm-hmm. do that. I don't want to indicate that you don't mm-hmm. still do that. But you then moved into doing full-length documentaries that all have had either a medical theme or mm-hmm. a rehabilitative theme. Mm-hmm. You've dealt with people with childhood cancer. You've dealt with people who have uh, terminal prognosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about that transition. Did you have to reset your mind and and look at story differently, or did you still look at story the same? You know, honestly, I've looked at it very similarly since then. Uh, the only difference is more things, a little bit more research may need to go into something, a little bit more planning. On a football field, Whatever happens, happens, and you're reacting to it. There's a little bit less reaction and a little more planning. Um, But again, I really feel that everything is character-driven. I feel like if you have good characters, the rest of the story follows from that. Um, That's what people want. And on the football field, if you have a great character or if you're in a hospital learning about some, uh, you know, an individual who's battling cancer and you make them a character that people – well, you don't make them. You show them as a character because they are um, in a way that people can relate to them and – try to understand what they're going through, whether or not they fully can grasp that. I feel like that's a basis for a good story. Um, and I don't think it changes. I think people would believe that sports is so different than these others. I haven't found that to be the case. It's taken a little bit of different technical changes on development on my side as far as what kind of footage I'm looking for, what kind of shots to get, that kind of thing. Um, but the core tenets of editing a good story and compiling in a fashion that makes sense, I feel like stay the same not regardless, but pretty close to regardless of what you're doing. But let me ask, doing sports, I, I would have a sense that you could be a little more detached. You know, some people, mm-hmm. uh, good guys are good women, and, and some people are jerks. Yep. And, 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 but when you're doing something where somebody is in the worst position yeah. in their lives, you have to cut them a little more slack. And I I wonder, do you get more emotionally invested? It depends. Um, <clears throat> many times, yes. At the same time, I there's a strange thing that happens where you do kind of detach yourself from the situation and kind of compartmentalize uh, and recognize that you, at least this is how I operate. Some people may not do that. Um, I kind of compartmentalize and realize this is, I'm here to do a job and this is the situation. The one project that I've done, though, that really affected me was the one we did on um, mental illness in prisons. And so we followed um, a few inmates and the Ohio Department of Corrections, a few women inmates, um, went into the prison. I'd never been in a prison before. Went into the prison for three or four days, not overnight, but in there interviewing them and kind of seeing what their life was like. And also in the context of these are individuals battling mental illness. And since that time period, that was about four years ago, three or four years ago, my concept of the criminal justice system in America has completely shifted. And I don't think anyone can really understand what prison is like. I still don't know because I could leave at any moment. But even just walking in there and hearing that door slam behind you. Hearing that door slam. I I mean, I was an attorney for a number of years and went to see clients there, and I never got used to that door slamming behind me. And you knew you could leave. Right. And it affected me. It still affects me. And to the point now, I try to reach out. I have friends who are, you know, incarcerated um, that I went to school with, that I try to stay in touch with them because I don't think people recognize how how rough it really is. 
you know, and uh, these are individuals. Not all of them are bad people. Some are. Uh, but that was one that I couldn't detach from. I tried to detach from it, and it lasted with me forever. Um, in the first health-related documentary mm-hmm. that you did, it was about, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, mm-hmm. but it was about uh, the role of art in with uh, people, young people child, with childhood cancers mm-hmm. of all kinds and how art and creativity took them away from their pain mm-hmm. or their predicament for a time. One of the little children that you focused on, a, mm-hmm. a child that you focused on, um, was amazing for film. Right. She was animated. She was vocal. Uh, she had a miraculous response to the artist that was working with her. She, not too long after the film was completed, died. Mm-hmm. What kind of reaction did you have to that? I mean, you captured this yeah. this little person you know, and she still had some vibrancy to her. That's a really strange feeling uh, to have something like that happen um, because we did capture that moment. Um, and I guess I felt in some ways I was upset by it, <clears throat> excuse me, obviously. Um, and she was a wonderful little girl, and I still have little drawings that she did and stuff. Um, but I tried not to make it about me in that moment and focus on my grief because I knew her for a period of, Two or three weeks. Mm-hmm. A very, I did spend a lot of time with her in the middle of the night when I was editing, watching her and you know going over footage and things like that. So I felt like I, in some ways, I knew her more than I actually did because I'd seen so much footage of her. Right, you know, right, so right. I tried to separate that a little bit um, and not make it about me and my grief or anything like that. But it's a very strange feeling uh, to have something like that happen. Um, you know, and you. It is nice to know that you may have done something a little bit to help her legacy or her, um, you know, live on in some form. Um, and that she, you know, even though she did pass away, she still remains on this film, showing others what's possible through arts and medicine and things like that. Um, so it's it's a very strange situation. You have done several documentaries now, uh, mm-hmm. long form documentaries that. Uh, have won regional Emmys and, mm-hmm. and other awards. Do you put, once you finish a documentary, do you put it behind you and move on? Or do you carry a little piece of every story and every documentary into the next one? So I, I'm interested yeah. in the creative process. And yeah. You talked about compartmentalizing. Mm-hmm. Is it Everything's always new and always different, or do you carry something with you? That's tough. I try to make things as new and different as possible. What we do run into is a lot of these, um, you know, there's stories about small towns in southeastern Ohio. A lot of the early stories may be similar. So some of those early things do, I do carry that with me um, a little bit. You know, the early you know, Ohio company land grants and things like that. A lot of that is very similar. But honestly, after I complete a documentary, I have maybe watched them once or twice since then. I don't go back. I can't watch it once I'm done with it. Um, you see the flaws, I've, I'm oh sure, right? <laughs> it's all I can do to watch it when it's screening. So, um, no, I uh, I kind of just move, move past it. I learn things. I learn little bits and pieces, and I learn how they relate to each other, possibly. Um, but beyond an overview of early stuff where things are in common 
it's pretty much all new. Um, are, are you like the artist? If you didn't have a deadline, you'd keep tinkering. With I would it be and on, tinkering with yeah. it. You'd still be back. I on would be on my number first, one, <laughs> on number one ever. I would have never finished anything, and that's part of my. Do not sound like a troubled artist. That's my process, um, and uh, it will not work for everyone. But I, you know, do research early on, and then I sit on it for a month or two of just. I'm still doing more research and things like that, but it takes that time to build up the the segues and how the story is going to go. Um, it takes me time to just think on it and I incubate. I don't procrastinate. I incubate. That's what I like to tell myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's a great term. It is. Yeah. It's, <laughs> to I, people who are going, is he going to make the uh, deadline? Exactly. You've been in that it, position. Yeah. I'm incubating. I always make the deadline, but I'm incubating. I know how it's going to turn out and you never know when some, I call them BFOs, blinding flash of the obvious, where it just happens and you're, you know, washing dishes and all of a sudden you realize, oh my goodness, that's how that can fit together with this other part of the story and go on from there. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. From the highly technical information and telecommunication systems to the theoretical communication studies and everything in between, programs in the college offer students both the fundamentals of communication practice and the tenacity and skills to further advance the field. In addition, the college is home to four centers and institutes that enable students to gain hands-on experience and learn new skills. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. So I want to take you now to historical documentaries, mm-hmm. which is where I really wanted to go with this mm-hmm. because I think they're unique and and special and, and certainly to most people's mind, they hear historical documentary and they think of Ken Burns. Of course. But there right. are obviously more and different genres right. than that. You took it upon yourself to uh, highlight small towns in an mm-hmm. Appalachian region and small counties and look at the rich history and fabric. Mm-hmm. And you and I have talked before. I think it's in part because we both get tired of – seeing people from the New York Times or the Washington right. Post come in, take pictures of toothless kids with dirty faces and cars up on blocks right. and right. saying that's Appalachia. Right. <laughs> when you decide that you have a target, a town mm-hmm. or, or a place, where do you start? Where uh, Walk us through the process, but talk about where you start. So these projects, I like to refer to them as, you know, that small town's 101 history course. You know where you are going to get a brief overview into the thing, the main, the high points of this. There'll mm-hmm. be some little things that a lot of people don't know, some little small pieces, um, you know, unknown facts and stuff. But it's a, a 101 crash course in this town's history. Honestly, the first place I go is I go to Google and I start. I go online. I start typing things in just to get a general idea of where do I even start. And, with and this. what are you looking for? <clears throat> I go. I'm looking for unique stories. I'm looking for people who have been from this small town that. People may not realize. Um, you mean noteworthy? Noteworthy. For instance, John, historically Wesley, yeah, John noteworthy. Wesley Powell, who was um, the first person to go through the Grand Canyon, was from the town of Jackson, Ohio, which we featured a couple years ago. Little things like that. 
um, so that people can recognize other individuals. You had the wonderful African-American poet that was a competitor to Lawrence Dunbar. Exactly, and, yeah. And James Campbell. And James Edwin Campbell in Pomeroy. So folks like that. I look for individuals. I look for events that may have happened. Um, you know, Morgan's Raid with the Civil War, other things like that. Um, natural disasters, floods fires in a lot of places too um but i really i do like to start with people because again it's character driven so so you're looking for dramatic events Mm -hmm. and or noteworthy people first yep and then i break it down into what industries were in the town um you know was this a salt community was this a coal community also immigrant groups and then how did that group of immigrants form the culture that that town evolved with and may still have. For instance, the town of Jackson was uh, founded by Welsh population. And so it was one of the largest Welsh communities in the country. And so that still is seen today. Pomeroy, uh, another town in Meigs County, Ohio, was founded by Germans. And so, not founded by Germans, but it was very much um, lived in by Germans and settled by Germans. And how that makes things different. It had a, a relatively noteworthy Welsh population as it did, well. Exactly. Did, was, did it not? Mm, with there the did. salt mines. Yeah, there was Welsh and Germans. In fact, there's a, a Welsh town hill and Dutch town hill. And there's a cemetery uh, with Welsh on one side. And then there is basically a line where the names change from Jones and Evans to Gleckner and Gerlach. And it's Welsh and then Germans. And then their African-American names are kind of in the side in the back of the cemetery. Um, so I like finding those. And who are these people? And how do these um, immigrant groups possibly show themselves today? Why, you know, maybe why are certain towns people the way they are? Maybe it goes back to, you know, who they come from. Certainly family names do. Family names, for sure. For instance, in Jackson, everyone's named Jones, because the Welsh have like <laughs> three last names, and they all use the same ones. Um, but yeah, with the names of Place names are important, too. Place names and people names. So if you get a, sort of a feeling of the people and maybe some major events. Mm-hmm. Now, as a student of words, uh, I could write something. Mm-hmm. I could write a narrative right. about that. But you're not – you're using words, but you're, you're using more than words. You're doing a different kind of narrative. So once you get all that – you just don't sit down and write the narrative no. of, of a community. Right. What do you do next? So I like to get – the biggest thing for me is to get involved in the local historical societies with the individual, the historians in that small town uh, because these are people who have spent their lives preserving this history. And I would hate to come into a town and say, hi, I'm Evan. I'm going to tell you about your town. That's not what this is. This is here's your town's history as told by the individual's who spent their life preserving your town's history, I'm simply compiling it into a cohesive story and all of their stories. So I get with them. I interview them. um, I look through their old photo albums. uh, I'll make lots of phone calls back and forth to them of, who do you think I should talk to about this? I try to find experts. Um, There'll always be a train guy. Every town has a train guy. (laughs) Every town has the brick guy and the coal guy um, or, or girl. Uh, the best is there's always a picture person, too. There's one person in every town in America, I'm convinced, that has albums upon albums of pictures, of old pictures, and they collect them. Maybe there's two in each town, but there's at least one. But and you're doing all of this without a camera, without a microphone. Exactly. You're, you're just going in as and Evan Shaw. And, and just and talking. And yep. Talking. And then once I find those individuals, then I ask them the, the question. And I've, I've pushed these interviews back further and further and further in the Process. process because I learned early on my first couple ones I asked everyone to do an interview and the only thing worse that I've found than not having enough people is having too many because you can't cut them out these people gave you an hour two hours of their time 
and they're told all their friends to watch this show and if they can't not appear in it. So once you ask that question of if they'd like to be interviewed in it. I interviewed Ivor Glass one time and uh, he said he tosses away 50% of the the people that he interviews. Yeah. And, and and so he, he goes in and never says – you're going to be part of the right. story. He just goes in, and it's obviously easier with right. the recording. But he just goes in and says, "I just want to talk to you." Yep, uh, and it's that I would love that. But for me, living in these small towns, you have you can't to do it, right? Yep, because then people will get word will get out, and all oh, that. Evan Shaw told me he was going to put me in there, so I interview these individuals um, and then work through the story of their town, and then kind of put it together. Um, and I think I thought about this a lot recently too. These every time I sit down with someone from the local historical society or a person who spent their life preserving this history. I refer to them as a historian. And the first thing they say is, oh, I'm not a historian. I just love history. And that bothers me because these are historians. They may not be academic historians, and I'm sure I'm going to make some academic historians mad by taking this, but I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, you don't need a PhD to know history. And I think that that's one of the things that's happened over the history storytelling of so long is we've made it so focused on dates and facts and you know just very minutia of figures and dates and people names place names and we're missing the bigger story and these people who spend their lives in these small towns devoting to preserving these stories are just as much a historian as anyone and and you certainly don't want to perpetuate falsehoods but and and i'm not accusing you of that but it's it's not whether it's 100 percent historically accurate Mm -hmm. it's the story that's been passed down generation to generation to generation that people perceive as being accurate. It's perception. Right. And there are easy, easy ways that if I find something that I don't know if it's true or not, scholars debate, done. But the story is so good sometimes. You know, I don't want to get into, you know, out there stuff on that. But there's a story in Jackson, the city of Jackson, about whether or not Daniel Boone jumped off a rock to escape some Native Americans. I don't know. I wasn't there. That's the legend. And in the documentary, we say we aren't sure. He may have. He may not have. But the place is called Boone Rock to this day. People should know why it's called Boone Rock. Did he jump it? I don't know. We weren't there. But um, the story but the originated. Story is there. That that's what has happened. has gone on, on exactly. for hundreds of years. Exactly. So we try to be, we always are, as much as we can be, truth. But we want it to come from authentic people who may not have 35 primary sources on it. But it's you know what I mean. That's that's important. Okay, yeah. so so let's shift gears a little mm-hmm. bit and, and talk about visuals because every time you look at an area, it looks different. Mm-hmm. The end product is different. It's right. reflective of that region or of that area. At what time do you start thinking of visuals, and and how do you? incorporate that with the narrative so i start thinking of pictures immediately i start doing as simple as a google image search for just to get an idea of what pictures are out there in the uh the ethos of you know in the atmosphere of this town Um, because you'll find a lot of the similar ones over and over where someone made a picture in 1910 made 100 copies of it and 15 people have them still so you'll find a lot of repeats um and tv you can't really do much of anything if you don't have an image for it and historical documentaries are difficult because you don't have images of all these events. So I immediately start trying to find out those photographs. What do we have? What is there that is real that is a picture of this bridge or this river or this coal mine or something like that? From there, I try to do um, 
wallpaper B-roll, I guess would be a good term of it, of say we're talking about Native Americans and we're talking about them migrating through the landscape. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of reenactments because unless you have the budget to do it incredibly, it's, it's kind of an all or nothing thing. It's, it looks sort of hokey. It's going to be awesome or hokey. There's yeah. no in-between. So I like to just go out in the woods and shoot some footage of trees or some paths. Where or, people might where have Where people been. might have walked. So it's almost a first person of here I am walking through there. Not, again, not hokey, but just that kind of stuff. Or sunsets, sunrises over the town, uh, time lapses of clouds, you things like that. You do a lot with water. I do a lot with water. I, and the reason I do a lot with water is almost, Rivers, almost every ponds, town is, streams, right? mornings. And almost every town that was built around water. Because when people are sell, settling in, they come up rivers. And so you look, almost every town in America, not every, but a large majority of towns in America, there's going to be a river running through it or on the side. We have the Hocking River here. Athens, Lancaster, Logan with the Hocking. Um, mm-hmm. Pomeroy on the Ohio. Uh, McConnellsville on the Muskingum. So they're all going to be around water. And water's cool. It looks pretty. <laughs> and so you, yeah. you want it to be pretty as and well. And it's moving. It's moving. Exactly. It's not just staying still. But that's how I use images is I start with the historical photographs. And what I've recently started doing, instead of just showing a photograph and that's it, I've started to print them off and then take them into these locations. So I'm shooting the photograph. For instance, we, you know, we've, in McConnellsville, we're shooting pictures of this mill. So I take the photograph to the riverbank and take footage of the photo of the mill with the river behind it to so what it kind of looked like but it's just something a little bit different uh to kind of step that up instead of just a slideshow of photographs which there's nothing wrong with it's just a little bit more of production value on that so let's stay with the visuals Mm -hmm. for a moment but let me go back the way you appear from a layperson Mm -hmm. to organize a documentary is again going back to my print background is in chapters mm-hmm. uh, you know they aren't really segmented chapters although right. they could be right yeah but they're they're different sections and you do transitions from one to right. to another how much do those chapters dictate what you're going to do visually? And do you start thinking about transitions? Do you lay out and say, okay, I, I see this is going to be five chapters, mm-hmm. and uh, that means I'm going to have to have four transitions? Yeah. I think the transitions are the one of the single most important parts of these particular documentaries because I want to tell the story of the town, and I want you to watch it and feel like you were told a story. I don't want you to feel like you were told 15 stories. You were told the story of this town through a bunch of different chapters, just like you said. So segues and transitions are always in the back of my mind. Um, The way I organize it is I have little post-it notes that I spread out over my wall because I like post-it notes because you can move them. They're not as permanent in that way. Like a whiteboard, once you erase it, it's gone. So I put those on there and I'm constantly trying. They go in kind of a grid. And when I get to the bottom of it, I need to... Make, make sure I have a transition to get from here to there to the next subject. Um, I do. I feel that historical documentaries like this, linear, is a great way. I like it linear. I like to start out with this is what happened here, and then this happened, and then this happened because this. Um, it's just, it makes sense to me. It's easy. It doesn't get too convoluted. You could do it other ways. And it's easier to follow. It is. It is. And it, <clears throat> it's easier in your... At all phases of it, your music gradually changes to a more modern music. Your everything can just kind of slowly change over time. Um, so I try to keep them as linear as possible. While and it's also easier to find segues that way because the segues probably naturally happened. 
um, if you keep it fairly linear. It may have been an evolution over time, exactly. but it makes for a nice segue from one right. chapter to another. Right. So I like to keep things very linear in that. Um, and let again, I like it to be one story told by many stories in it. But when you're done, I think you should feel like you just were told a story, not a bunch of other little things put together. So. All right. So at what point do you say, okay, I'm done? I have... I have all the interviews that I need. I have all the footage I need. I have photographed or videoed all the pictures I need. I'm done um, with with that part of it. The deadline. Okay. <laughs> so the way I work, and again, this is me, um, a lot of people, this would not work for them, but it does for me for whatever reason. Um, I work alone in a lot of ways. I'm my own cameraman. I'm my own editor, which has its pluses and minuses. The good part of that is, it's not that difficult. If I want to change something, I can go grab my camera and go shoot one last thing to put in there. I have put things, changed little things like that up until 10 minutes before exporting it as a final version. Um, so I, there have been so many amazing stories I've found a week before a deadline that I, I hate to limit myself. I have my basic model of what the story will be months and months ahead of time. But I never want to limit myself if I can get it, make it work. Um, you know, if, if I have a deadline of this date, but so we need to get into production and get copies made there, there've been times I've done things that morning and okay, I need one more shot of a brick and I know where that's going to go and I'm going to do it just like this, or I need a shot of this and the moon's not right till tomorrow and things like that. So, uh, I, I push it to the last minute that again, won't work for everyone, but for my personal process of me just having it all together out there and pulling it in, it works really well. The other elements to what you do are, are narrative. Mm -hmm. uh, you have a narrator mm -hmm. uh, that helps with the transitions but helps to give a little bit of the backstory. Right. Does the setup mm -hmm. uh, for, for what you're getting into. You write all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, when do you do that, and and or is that an ongoing process? That's an ongoing process. So I have an app on my phone that if I have an idea for something, I'll put it in there real quick. I have the whole script on my phone and also on my computer. So I am constantly um, updating that throughout the time period. I will sit down, um, you know, about two months before the film's done to really write it all. Um, and again, a lot of people would write this before they shot a single frame of video. Right. I, my brain doesn't work that way. I need you to go backwards. I need to go, go from backwards. the video to the exactly. written word. Yep. I just, I, for some, whatever reason, my brain just does not work that way. And that's fine. I've learned to embrace it. This is, it works for me. Um, so I wait a little bit and I try to push the, uh, the narration back as far as I can really. Um, and then when I write it, I try to keep my narration simple, truth, but simple. I, you know, Hemingway is the, obviously the standard for simple, short sentences, but I, the best television writing especially is to say a very true thing followed by a very true thing followed by a very true thing. And then after you're done with a little tweaking, you have these beautiful phrases um, that kind of come out and you don't get bogged down. It's so easy when writing for television to try to get too complicated and try to get flowery with your words. Flowery words work well on a page. They don't always work well when someone's reading them to you with footage over top of it. They so, sound over the top. They sound over the top and you just get confused and you lose track. So the other mix besides the written word mm -hmm. is 
the music, and I know that's very important to you. You mm-hmm. come from a musical heritage with your family. Mm-hmm. When do you start thinking about, I'm going to need this, or maybe I can't find that. Maybe we have to create that. But talk about that yeah, process. That's an ongoing process as well, and I'm very fortunate because my parents are professional musicians, right. <laughs> So, yeah. and we have a great audio staff here, so I can bring my family in, and I need this kind of a song. And I've done it both ways where I sometimes I just need music and it doesn't matter to me quite what it is. I don't have a full idea, so I'll have them play three or four songs, pick whichever one's best. Other times in certain scenes, I know exactly what I need and I get very minute on it. It needs this, it needs to be this long, it needs to crescendo here, and that's it. Um, it it's kind of give or take in each one. Um, each documentary is different in that. Um, we, sometimes we recycle songs between the two because it, it just works um, and they're good music and they're classic timeless fiddle tunes and things like that. Um, that's good for the first part of the, um, the film. But as we move into the modern era, because these, town, these uh, films cover the history of the town from mm-hmm. the beginning to now, we go into more of a stock music, more higher produced kind of stuff, not as much fiddle guitar banjo because it doesn't fit. Um, And that is simply a process of listening to a bunch of stock music, and it's mind-numbing sometimes. I bet it (laughs) is. It is is the worst part, um, sitting there, oh, no, that's not good, that's not good. And finally you'll hit one, and it's right. I couldn't tell you why it's right. It just is. Um, And there's really – that's a – some people are better at than others. It's a feel. It's it's instinctive. Yep, exactly. And it's one of the hardest parts of the job, in my opinion, is to sit there – because you can sit there for hours. Yeah. Um, and then it's also a chicken or the egg thing of do I edit this to the music or do I find music for the edit? I like to have a song down and work my cuts around so they're cutting on the beats and things like that. But that isn't always possible. Um, so it's, it kind of depends. The editing process, I, I, I want to talk about that uh, mm-hmm. as well. And I know that's laborious mm-hmm. uh, because you always have on the cutting room floor, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, something that you thought was a gem. Right, right. <laughs> but you can't find room for it or there's no time for it. Right. Or, and, and you're doing these for time. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. I'm 56 minutes and 46 seconds. There you go. Period. Done. That's as much as I, time as I have. And so <clears throat> it is difficult. The hardest part is taking things out. I used to struggle with that and get upset, like, oh, I need to. I wish I could keep that in. How can I tweak How it can, to yeah. get it in? And then you find out you're making things more complicated. And I've tried to and maybe not making it better. Right? Exactly, more complicated is not always better, and more information is not always better. If someone leaves watching this film and wants to find out more, then I've done my job. Is kind of how I see this. Um, so I've I've really tried to relax on some of this and slow it down, not slow it down, but take some of the complicated stories out, maybe here or there. Those are the first ones to go, I think, are the ones that maybe aren't as important and they're just difficult to tell. Um, the editing process. Once I start editing, I can't quit. And what I mean by that is I don't start editing until the last possible minute because once I get in it, I know I have to know where thousands of pieces of information are, literally thousands of sound bites and music and photographs. And it's very, very, very difficult to be in that world where it's all you think about, for me at least, and then you step back. And to get back in that is next to impossible. You know, So if I take a day off, it will take me two days to remember where I was. You have to totally be in the moment. Completely immerse myself, which is why I usually work at night. I do my best editing at night. I used to fight that and try to work during the day better, and it just doesn't work. So I've kind of just given up on that. You need to isolate yourself, and you're in your own head. Exactly. It's the only thing that matters. And I don't even know if it's isolation, but just the pure adrenaline of, it's 9 o'clock at night. I need to go home, work, get things done, go. 
because um, I can shut my door, but it's, there's just something different about working at night. But when I edit, I have to be completely engrossed. Again, other people may not have to, but for me to know where all these things are going to fit together, it is con- all-consuming. Um, and I enjoy it. I love it. It's th- like being in that hyper-focused moment is such an adrenaline rush, and I really enjoy it. It's kind of fun. Uh, coming out of it and seeing the world, I haven't showered in four days and <laughs> or seen my family's a little strange. Or I'll go uptown to get a coffee and people are looking at me like, what is this guy? <laughs> What's this zombie? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? But I, I enjoy it. Narration, is, we talked about that a bit, mm-hmm. but it, it's important the the type of voice you have. Mm-hmm. And you have picked someone who uh, certainly sounds well-worn. Right. And he, <laughs> that yeah. He's been around for a while. He's got a low gravelly voice mm-hmm. with a bit of an Appalachian sure. uh, uh, twang to it. How important is to match the voice with I think that, everything yeah, else? That's vitally important. And not just with uh, Rusty does the narration for the uh, the main narration, but we also do voiceovers. You know, And I want to find people who fit the person that is speaking uh, beyond just a male-female thing, but accents and also just a general tone of who this person is. Um, and so that's it's vitally important uh, to find that narrator or those narrators or voice actors who are – can't convey that. There's an old saying that, you know, 80, I can't remember what the numbers are, but 80% of what you see is actually what you're hearing. Audio is so important. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can get by with some bad video, but if the audio is bad, you can't deal with it. And so it's doubly important to have people that are good. When it's good, it just gives it an entirely new level of professionalism. So I very much try to find individuals who fit that mold. The best one I did was uh, in Jackson with the Welsh uh, speakers, and we had an actual uh, woman from Wales read Welsh letters written in Welsh from the 1800s, and that was so cool. Um, I even learned a little Welsh, and it was great. <laughs> so it's a difficult language. So we talk about uh, the public's perception of historical documentaries being Ken Burns mm-hmm. and how he has gone about doing amazing mm-hmm. multi-part films. Do you look at people like Ken Burns and others and say, oh, that's that's cool. I could do that. Or do you try not to so that you don't dilute your own process? How, how do you work with that? I am very, very particular about which historical documentaries I watch. I'm very limited. And to be honest, Ken Burns is one of the ones that I do watch. And I will watch, He's as far as I'm concerned, he's the best. And uh, some people may argue back or forth, but I don't know that he's the greatest historian, but he is the greatest history storyteller. And that's what I try to be. I try to make this engaging. Because if we don't make history engaging, we're going to lose it. I, you know, I speak in elementary schools and middle schools, and why is it important to learn history? And nobody raises their hand. Kids are so beat down, and this is me on my soapbox. This is Evan Shaw speaking, no one else. But kids are so beat down, I feel, with dates and numbers, and it's just boring. <laughs> history is one of those subjects that can just bore a hole through you, whereas individuals like Ken, and um, Ken Burns is my first name basis with him, but I think those people who make it a story and make it fun, people love history. They just don't know it is the biggest thing that I've found. If I can tell you a story about an individual from your hometown, there's a guy from Meigs County who fired the first shot in World War II. When I tell people that story, the first American shot in World War II was fired by a man from Middleport. It blows their mind, and they love it. So I watch storytellers like uh, you know Ken Burns and uh, his brother, and, and that whole little Florentine 
Films Production House. I watch those. Uh, American Experience on PBS. I watch a lot of those. I'd stay away from other individual shows mm-hmm. because I don't want to dilute what I do. And I have my own view. There are other I don't watch. I definitely do not watch and make a point not to watch other town history shows. This, this is a model that other stations around the country do. I don't watch any of those because that is too directly involved with what I do. I want to see big picture ideas and how are they telling that story for the Civil War or something like that. But I don't want to watch other town history shows. And there's nothing against those shows. I just don't want to see it because who knows what that'll do to my own creative process. It's kind of strange. Yeah. It seems, last point, Mm -hmm. but it seems that from where we began with filming athletics to where we end with historical documentaries – that the common theme is story. Absolutely. And story is so cliche, not cliche now, but it's people are recognizing the importance of it. And it's, you hear the word a lot more now. Um, and it is though, it's a, it's important. And I'm glad people are finally recognizing the things that can be done with a story. We, we are storytelling culture. We're storytelling people, organism, you know, the oldest cavemen sitting around telling stories about their hunt that day. That's how information has been passed down for years. And, um, there's an old saying, you know, tell me a fact and I'll remember it. Tell me a story and it'll live in my heart forever. And I think that's so true. Um, that it's a way to convey information or feelings almost subliminally, get it in there, you know, and make people interested and make things exciting. Um, and when it comes to history, I'm just a huge proponent of that, of these historical documentaries, making them true and accurate and real but also entertaining and relevant and why is why does it matter today uh but yeah story is it's everything right now um and i think it's we live in such a fun time that there are so many avenues to get stories out we can do podcasts we can do videos we can do anything it's such a story driven society right now um that it's it's a fun time it's hard to keep up with evan Thank you for your time. Thank you. And best of luck on your next one coming out in March, right? Yes, I hope so. I got to get it done. (laughs) It'll be there. (laughs) Thanks. I appreciate your time. Yep. Today, we've been talking with award-winning filmmaker Evan Shaw about how he approaches documentaries from conception to final product. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. You can also find Spectrum at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your podcast outlets. We also want to remind you that WOUB has launched a new podcast called Lifespan. Episode 4 was just recently released. On Lifespan, you'll hear stories about encounters with the healthcare system. Each show contains stories bound by a common theme, a person's personal journey through a particular type of medical trauma. Subscribe to this new podcast. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or at NPR One.